Notice with me, please, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. You know, in Romans chapter 15 and verse 8, the Bible tells us that Jesus came to fulfill the promises made to the patriarchs, namely Abraham and his descendants. Then again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20 says this, for all the promises, for how many? All the promises of God find their yes in him, meaning in Christ. The answer to every promise through Christ is yes. And this must refer to the promises of the Old Testament. Because when Paul penned these words by the Holy Spirit, the New Testament was not yet written. It certainly wasn't fully written, you see. Jesus himself said in John chapter 4, verse 22, for salvation is from the Jews. To the Jews, specifically the offspring of Abraham, to them were entrusted the oracles of God. So there are no other scriptures. There's no Egyptian scriptures, Babylonian scriptures. It only came through the Jews. And then again, in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, we read that to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises all to the offspring of Abraham. But the Jews have largely rejected the gospel, but through their fall, redemption has come to us Gentiles. So we are in a series, and this will be the last installment in this series. This is the seventh lesson. It might be good to go back and if you get a chance, hear the other ones. I know it'll help you. But we can never fully apprehend and appreciate what we have in Christ without tracing the Jewish roots of our salvation. Going back and tracing the Jewish roots of our salvation. So we have to go back to the beginning to correctly understand the ending. The Old Testament poses the questions which the New Testament answers. The law under the Old Covenant reveals the sinfulness of all men. But God's solution, grace and truth, were revealed to us by one man, Jesus Christ. So the key to understanding the New Testament is actually understanding the Old. As we've said before, you cannot be all that God wants you to be with only half a Bible. See, many Christians act like the Old Testament. They say, well, we're not under the Old Covenant, so they just dismiss that part. They might as well take a pair of scissors and cut that out of their Bible. But no, it's, intended, it's there for an intended purpose. The key to understanding the New Testament is an understanding of the Old, and the key to understanding the Old Testament, one of the main keys, is understanding covenant. And that's what I want to talk about tonight, briefly. And of course, we could talk about this subject you know, for days on end, but this will suffice for one night. We want to talk about covenant. As we remember the scripture that we began reading, God in Deuteronomy, God is a covenant-keeping God. 
hallelujah, from the outset, from the beginning of time, God entered into covenants with men, and it formed the basis of his dealings with humanity. The Bible itself is a book of covenants. It is not merely a collection of history and poetry, and it's really wrong to see it only in that light. The Bible is a legal document. Certainly, we get encouragement and inspiration from reading the Bible, going back and reading maybe the Psalms and the Proverbs and, and things of that nature. And of course, we can learn much by studying the lives of people. But some people read the Bible as if it was nothing more than a hallmark greeting card. You know, you get a card from somebody on your birthday and you open it up and there's a little verse. I, I dare say, is there anybody here that's gotten a, a birthday card recently and you could stand up right now and quote to me what was written inside that birthday card? I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think you remembered it even one hour later. It's just a nice sentiment. Aw, thinking of you. Aw, ain't that nice? And that's how some people read the Bible. Aw, ain't that cute? Aw, isn't that nice? No, 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 the Bible's a legal document. The Bible is a book of covenants. A covenant is an agreement. It is an accord. It is a contract, a pact, or a treaty. Men in ancient times made covenants among themselves. They made covenants to confirm promises and to form alliances. So in other words, this, this goes, back, goes back to the beginning of time. Ancient men made covenants with one another you know, to confirm promises, to make those promises sure and solid, and to form alliances. And of course, there are different types of covenants. We know this just from reading the Bible. For example, it wouldn't hurt us to look a little bit. In Genesis chapter 26, we read about a man named Abimelech, who was the king of the Philistines. He, along with the commander, Phicol was his name, the commander of the Philistine army, came to Isaac, the son of Abraham. And Isaac said to them, why are you coming to me since you hate me? And they answered him in verse 28, verse, Abimelech said in verse 28, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Now, by the way, let me stop. That's the way it should be in our lives too. If you're a covenant man, people who don't even know God should say, we see clearly that God is with you. Right? Praise the Lord. When you tell someone, I'm a Christian, they shouldn't be so shocked they pass out. They should say, you didn't have to tell me. I can see Christ in your life. Amen. Praise the Lord. So they said, we see plainly. And they didn't have revelation. They just used their eyeballs. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. So they ratified what we might call a peace treaty. He said, you hate me, why have you come? He said, we wanna make a covenant with you. So they made like a peace treaty, promising not to harm each other. Think about that, Isaac is just a individual. And here comes a king, 
of a nation who says we need to make a peace treaty. Wouldn't that be interesting if like, you know, uh, North Korea came to my front, Kim Jong-un <laughs> came to my front door. Oh, Kim, you've lost weight. And he, you gained weight, John. And he came to my front door and said, we need to make a peace treaty with you, John, because we see the Lord is with you. That, that's what happened here, a king. Hallelujah. So they, they, they made promises not to harm each other. And the Bible says they ate a meal together that evening. And the next morning, they made promises. The Bible says they exchanged oaths. Oaths. Which means they swore on their sacred honor certain promises to each other. By the way, we could stop here for a second. You know, we know that God keeps his promises to us. We expect that. But you know, we also need to keep our promises to one another. Your muted response tells me it might be good to repeat this again. You know, if you said, I'm going to come at 3 p.m. and pick you up, then make sure at 3 p.m. you're there to pick that person up, right? If you said, you know, yes, tomorrow I'll help you with this work, make sure that tomorrow you're there to help them with this work, you know? That has something to do with walking with God keeping your word. Your word should be just as good to others as God's word is to you. If you don't keep your word, what are you? Uh, let's try this. How about this word, liar? <laughs> I know that offends you, but you know, that's, that's, that's really the truth. Amen? Oh, I better move on. So they made, they made promises to each other and, to, and they swore by their sacred honor. Actually, it's interesting, if you go back, nine years earlier to this event, the same fellow, Abimelech, made a similar covenant with Abraham, the father of Isaac. And that was in Genesis chapter 21. And on this occasion, Abraham gave Abimelech some sheep and Abimelech said, what's this all about? And he says, this is a testimony, a witness of the covenant. And then after he left in verse 33, Genesis 21, 33, it says Abraham planted a tree, a terebinth tree, which to me suggests that that tree was a memorial to the covenant. Why? Covenants are not only made, they are remembered. Very important. Covenants must be remembered. Now you can understand why Jesus that evening, that Passover evening in the upper room, said to them, take this and do it in remembrance of me. Well, we're not going to forget you. You're right here. We've been spending the last three and a half years. No, no, no. It's covenant. You must remember the covenant. Praise the Lord. So the covenant that they made gave each of them assurances of safety and preservation. And even ungodly people like the Philistines honored this covenant. Isn't that amazing? Albimelech, you know, he's not a man of God. But he, even he, honored the covenant. So to ancient peoples, we can see this from reading the Bible, to ancient peoples, the idea of breaking covenant was unthinkable, unheard of. They would be aghast. In fact, if you want to go one step further, breaking a covenant is cause for death. If you break a covenant with someone, they're coming for you. They're, I'm talking about in ancient times. If you made a covenant, a pact with someone in ancient days, and then you broke it, 
Don't bother to say, I'm sorry, because they're coming after you. And when they find you, they're going to kill you. That's why even today we have these expressions like, there's bad blood between them. Blood is thicker than water. It's not just talking about family. It means he's a covenant breaker. Praise the Lord. Then again, let's look at another scripture. In, um, is it 2 Samuel or 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 3. It says, then Jonathan made a covenant. Here we go again. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. So it's very interesting that Jonathan and David had a bond of brotherly love from the moment they met. So this can teach us a lot, though it's not really our topic today. It can teach us a lot about the value of friendship. See, one Jonathan is worth a hundred, you know, Saul's, (laughs) a hundred fair-weather friends. Amen? And it's interesting, as soon as they, once again, I don't want to get off track, but as soon as they met, the Bible says their soul was knit together. God will bring people into your life. You could preach right here. God will bring people into your life for a purpose, for a reason, and for a season. And what you need to do is you need to recognize and value the relationships that God has brought into your life. See, the relationships that God has given you are more important to your life than the money you have in your pocket or the valuables you have at home. Amen. So David and Jonathan both recognize this. And by the way, the people that God brings into your life may come from a different strata of society. Jonathan was a, a, a prince. David was just an ordinary guy. But God knit them together. Isn't that amazing? So really, they're very different people. One is from the tribe of Judah. One is from the tribe of Benjamin. They're very different people. Very different backgrounds. And there's a contentious situation among them. What do they both have in common? Saul. <laughs> My father and your enemy. <laughs> And yet that did not spoil their friendship. I'm telling you, somebody needs to hear this tonight. In spite of that difficulty, they kept that friendship intact. I think they knew it was from God. And then so, in, that was chapter 18. And then in verse 4, the very next verse, it says this, that Jonathan took off his royal robe, or his garment, and put it on David. He also removed his belt his sword, his bow, and his armor, and gave them to David. Now, for a commoner like David to wear a garment of the son of the king is a high and extreme honor, extremely unusual, you know. I think people, you understand, in ancient days, honor and respect was, was much more heavily a part of their life than it, than, it, than it is in ours, to be honest with you. So the very fact that, that, they, that he could wear the same garment that was worn by the son of the king is, is highly unusual. And then by giving him his armor and his weapons, what he's really saying is this is part of their covenant. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to shield you. I'm going to look after you. And that's exactly what happened. And so they already were the closest friends, BFF, but now they became 
covenant partners. Praise the Lord. Years later, many years later, after much water had flowed under the bridge, when David was king, he inquired in his palace, he inquired if there were any surviving descendants of the late King Saul. And he said in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Even after Jonathan was long gone, because he had died in battle, he actually, it actually happened at the very last chapter of, of 1 Samuel, he died in battle along with his father, he's gone, but David remembered the covenant. Again, remembering is a very important part of covenant. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Or in other words, don't forget the covenant. So his servants, David's servants, searched, and they found one remaining son of Jonathan. He was living in a place called Lodibar, a crippled man, and his name was Mephibosheth. I don't know why anyone would name their son Mephibosheth, but he did. And when Mephibosheth, which is not easy to say, when Mephibosheth, say that five times real fast, when Mephibosheth was brought before David, he lay on the ground with his face on the ground because uh, he expected to be put to death. See, in that day, among nations, it was a, the common practice that the ruling dynasty would slaughter and eliminate any remaining family members of the previous royal family for fear that they might try to usurp the throne or come back and uh, instigate a coup or something of that nature. So Mephibosheth thought, obviously the reason he went to search for me was to kill me. But instead, even though Saul had mistreated David and more than once had tried to kill him, David said to Mephibosheth, I'm restoring to you all the land of King Saul. And all of his former servants are now your servants and they will work that land and provide for you. And the Bible says, and Mephibosheth ate at the king's table as one of the king's sons. Ooh, praise the Lord. Why? He said, because of the covenant that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake. The word kindness is a covenant term. Often in the Old Testament, we read about, you know, thy loving kindness is better than life. Or, or sometimes the word is translated mercy, you know. Uh, in other verses, it says that God keeps covenant to a thousand generations, showing loving kindness and mercy. Well, the, the Hebrew word for kindness or mercy or loving kindness is the word hasid. Hasid. And it, it's a difficult word to translate. It cannot be translated into English because there is no English equivalent. You know, a chair is a chair in any language. But when you start talking about concepts and ideas, those don't often convey from one language into another. So that's why it's difficult to translate. Probably the best way we could describe this word hasid is covenant love. It's a covenant term, covenant love. It means 
because of the covenant, I swear in blood that I will take care of you. I swear, I promise to love you. It's not talking about a feeling or some kind of emotion. It means I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. I've got your back. If somebody comes against you, they're coming against me. You know, if somebody curses you, I'm going to curse them. If somebody blesses you, I will bless them. That, that's the kind of language. That's the kind of idea behind this word. That's what David is doing, all because of covenant. So what you find out is these people in Israel, they think differently than you and I. They think differently, you see. Well, we know from reading the Bible, the Israelites became a nation of slaves living in subjugation to the Egyptians for 400 years. But God delivered them through Moses and brought them to Mount Sinai. Now, when a nation gains its independence, you know, they say that Great Britain is the only nation that doesn't celebrate or doesn't have an independence day because that's the nation everybody got their independence from. So when a nation gains its independence, you know, the first thing it does is write a constitution and then form a government, see? Well, Israel wasn't a democracy, it was a theocracy and God was their king. He always intended that he would be the head of their government, you see. In fact, their nation was supposed to be a, a representation of the kingdom of God, and they were to be kings and priests unto God, you see. And, you know, India has a constitution. America has a constitution. Other nations have a constitution. Israel did not have a constitution. They had a covenant they had a covenant. Deuteronomy chapter five, verse two says, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Horeb is another word for Mount Sinai, often called the mountain of God. And on that mountain, Moses received commandments from God. And he came down after he received these commandments and he read them to the people. And in Exodus 24, verse four, the people answered with one voice in unison, and they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. What does that mean? They agreed. They didn't have to. They agreed to the terms of the covenant. They could have said, no, thank you. They could have said, we'll be on our own. Thanks a lot. Thanks for bringing this out, but we're not interested. But they themselves, God didn't force them. See, God didn't say, whether you like it or not, here's the deal. Uh, you know, it has to be this way. No, he, he, he gave them the terms, and they agreed. They said, yes, we agree. And so Moses offered sacrifices on 12 altars, which represented each tribe. And he took the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkled the book, the book of the covenant. It was written down, you see. And then he took the blood and he sprinkled the people. He sprinkled the people with blood. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant that God is making with you today. So today, we don't have covenants, we have contracts. And we don't have blood, we have ink. We just sign our name, and it's not worth anything. Even if you have, you know, uh, uh, three witnesses and two lawyers, and it's, you know, uh, 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 whatever, you know, uh, uh, notary paper or that type of thing from the court. It doesn't matter. Somehow they wiggle out of it. But here, this was ratified with blood. Hallelujah. And you, the Hebrew word for covenant means, I think it's pronounced berth, the Hebrew word for covenant means a cut, 
a place where the blood flows. So you don't make covenants, you cut them. You cut them. So this was a blood covenant. Everything that God did for the Israelites was based on the covenant. It was based on the covenant. They had rights and blessings because of covenant. It was the covenant that made them unique as God's chosen people. They had something that no one else on earth had. And when they faced impending calamity or danger, they didn't just pray, they invoked the covenant. They repeated to God, these are the promises that you have given to us. This is the word that you gave to our father, Abraham. They are standing on the covenant. Praise the Lord. Amen. I mean, think about it. God worked miracles, astounding, astonishing miracles that we read about. Why? Because of covenant. Because of covenant. Praise the Lord. He's a covenant-keeping God. But the covenant did not begin at Mount Sinai. It began long before that with their father, Abraham. Let's take a little deeper dive here. Notice this scripture, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, and also verse 2. Genesis 17, 1 says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Literally in Hebrew, you may know, he said, I am El Shaddai. I am El Shaddai. And this word is difficult to translate as well, and rabbis debate among, have debated among themselves what this actually means. It most likely means the all-sufficient one. The one, it also means the nurturer the one who cares for you like a nursing mother. So he's saying that I am the one who provides. I am the one who is able to take care of you. I am everything you need. So live before me and live a life that's pleasing to me. And then verse two, he said, that I may make my covenant between me and you. And you know, later on in verse seven, the Lord told Abram that this would be an everlasting covenant and I will be a God to you. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will be your God. You'll be my people. That's the covenant. And the Lord did two things. He took the H out of his name, Yahweh, or we sometimes say Jehovah, and he gave it to Abram. And he said, now it's Abraham. And he took the H out of his name, Yahweh, and gave it to Sarai, and now she is Sarah. And then secondly, he said to Abram, or Abraham, you and all your household shall be circumcised. And verse 11 of the same chapter says, it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now a mark in the flesh is not the covenant. It was a sign or symbol of the covenant. For example, if you'll notice on my hand, you may not be able to see from the back of the room, but I have on my wedding band. I don't know if you can tell that or not. Uh, just trust me, it's there. So uh, what, does, what does this signify? Is it just a, uh, an attractive ring that adorns my finger? No, it, it's much more than that. This indicates that I am married. In case you didn't know that, I am. And uh, 
And uh, this, this ring, let's see if I can, I have a fat finger. Uh, so this ring is not my marriage, right? See, I've taken it off, so that means I'm single at the moment. No, this <laughs> doesn't work that way, does it? <laughs> this ring is not my marriage. My marriage is a relationship that I have with this woman. I'm actually in a covenant with her, right? The ring, the ring is not the marriage. In fact, you, you can go buy a ring. I mean, you know, if you want a ring, go buy a ring, you know, whatever you want to do, you know. But the, the, the ring is a symbol of the covenant, right? So it indicates, it marks me, in case there are any wandering eyes out there, this marks me that I am in a covenant relationship. Don't look so sad, your ring is coming, I'm sure, but I'm just telling you that, an example, right? So circumcision was like that, in a sense that it was not the covenant, it was a sign or a symbol, and it indicated that that person was included in the covenant. Then later, we read Genesis 17, next chapter, Genesis 18, Right after that, it's so interesting, right after that, suddenly it's different. One day, Abram, Abraham, is sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, and the Bible says he saw the Lord and two angels walking down the road. Now, this is different. This is something we've never seen before. They came walking, it's not a vision, because as later on, as they were talking to Abraham, Sarah in the tent could hear the conversation. This, this happened. This is in the flesh. This is a pre-incarnation, incarnate appearance of Christ. He's walking down the road. Abraham got up, you know, and being very hospitable. You know, Eastern people are very hospitable. Naga. And, and invited him, you know, to, 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 to have you know, a meal with him. And he quickly fixed a meal. And very similar to people that we know as well, he said, let me just get a little, a little morsel and some water to, you know, wash your feet. But he actually went inside and said, kill the fatted calf and make the best meal possible. That's like, you know, you go to some people's houses, you know, around here and they say, well, just a little simple, simple dinner, nothing special. And then it's like, you know, 17 different courses. They, they say that, you know, that's, so Abraham kind of like that too, you know, and they ate a meal. And then as they were leaving, they're talking, they're, they're having a conversation. Abraham is walking with the Lord. He sees him in the flesh. And as they're walking, the Lord says, sort of a rhetorical question, like to the other two angels, he said, he said uh, in verse 17, Genesis 18, 17, shall I hide from Abraham the thing that I'm about to do? So there's been a change now. This is not just a man who has some promises. He's not just a man who has believed the word of God. This, there's a relationship. I'm in covenant with this man. We are friends. We are covenant friends. And he revealed, you know, the story, he revealed that he was going to judge the people in the city of Sodom. And I find it interesting personally that Abraham took it upon himself to interject himself into the situation. He doesn't have anything to do with it. He's, he could just go back to his tent and say, oh, wow, that's interesting, huh? We'll be, uh, we'll be looking for that big, you know, mushroom cloud in the sky tomorrow. No, but he, he, he interjects himself into the situation. And he says, Lord, will you, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? I mean, that's not fair that you would, you know, slay, you know, upright people along with, with, with sinful people. That's not right. 
And, and he says, Lord, if you find 50 just people, will you spare the whole city? And the Lord said, I'll do it. And then, you know, Abraham was the first Jew, not to be unkind, but he just bargained. He just Jewed him down, just chipped it down, just chipped it down, and he got down to 10. <laughs> That's not very nice, is it? He got down to 10, and he said, if you find 10, he says, I'll spare the whole city for 10. And amazing, praise the Lord, amen. So this is like something that's never happened before in the Bible, where this ordinary man is bargaining with the Lord of heaven, speaking to him so frankly, in tones of kindness and humility, yes, but just very frankly. Is it, who are you? Who are you to talk to God? Well, this is, shall I hide from him? He's my covenant partner. And because Abraham interceded, Lot, his uh, sometimes questionable nephew, was saved. In fact, the Bible says that uh, Lot, you know, as the angels were saying, you need to get out of here now. The sun is risen, it's time to get out of here. And the Bible says Lot hesitated. You know, he, I, I don't, why, why would you hesitate? Why would you want to live in Sodom? That's the first question. <laughs> the second question is, when the angels are telling you this place is going to be destroyed, why would you say, well, I haven't had my breakfast yet, and I always wait for the morning paper. No, 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 get out of there. Why would you? He hesitated. That's funny. That's funny. Is that you can kind of get used. Just because you're used to something doesn't mean you should stay there. <laughs> and, and the Bible says the angels took him by the hand, grabbed him, and escorted him out. And then he said, well, I don't, I don't want to go here. Let me go to this little place over there. And they said, well, go. But we cannot do anything until you leave. Well, why not? Because of Abraham. I don't think Lot even realized that Abraham had anything to do with this. How would he know? There are some people whose lives are spared. Some people whose lives are blessed. They don't even know it. it's because of you. It's because of your prayers, because of your intercession, because you're standing upon the covenant. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. By the way, isn't that interesting? I mean, Abraham knows he has a covenant with God. Shall I hide from Abraham when I'm about to? I'm going to destroy Sodom. He could have said, that's nice, but what I really need is a motorbike. <laughs> he, he immediately, he, he used his, his opportunity, his position as a covenant partner, actually to show mercy on others. Just a thought. Praise the Lord. And so we know that the covenant of Abraham passed on to Isaac and then to Jacob and then it was renewed at Sinai. However, this is what I want to say. If you read the book of Genesis carefully, you'll see that there was another covenant that predated the covenant in Genesis 17 where he changed his name and talked about circumcision. There's another covenant which came before Genesis 17. And that would be interesting to look at. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 7, God said to, at that time, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abram lived as a foreigner 
in the land of Canaan. In fact, he didn't even have a single plot, not even one plot. When Sarah died, he had to go and meet with the local people and negotiate to buy one little cave to bury his, his dead wife. He didn't even have that. All the years he's there, he didn't even have one little plot of land. It's interesting. And so Abram asked the Lord in verse 8, Genesis 15, 8, how am I to know this? How am I to know, rather, that I shall possess it? In other words, what he's saying is, you know, this, this sounds nice, but it just seems fantastic. It just seems, you know, beyond belief. What assurances, what guarantees can you give me that this will come to pass? And the Lord didn't get angry with him, but his answer to Abram sounds very strange to our ears. Notice with me verse nine. And he said, the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer. <laughs> that's, that's a cow. I mean, you know, what would, you, what would you think if you're praying, Lord, how will I know that this promise will come true? And the Lord said, bring me a cow. <laughs> bring me a heifer, three years old. And a female goat, three years old. And a ram, three years old. And a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Now see, if God said that to one of us, we would have no idea what on earth is he talking about? Are we going to start like a zoo or something like that? Or we're going to have a big dinner? Or what is this? What does he mean? It just seems ridiculous. But Abraham knew what God was driving at. Verse 10. And he brought him all these. You know, Abram brought all these things to God. And notice, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. God didn't tell him to do that. God didn't say, bring a cow, a goat, a ram, two birds, and then cut them in half and lay the dead body on the ground facing each other. He didn't say that. He just said, bring these animals. And Abram knew what this meant. He means, I'm going to make a covenant with you. How do you know it? Because it was the practice of the day. It was not unusual. What was unusual was, this is not between two men. This is between God and a man. So typically in Abram's or Abraham's day, they would take these animals and they would slice them in half and lay the dead carcasses opposite each other. Then, and you can imagine how bloody that would be. I mean, that would just be not only gory, but just extremely bloody. And then the two parties who are entering into covenant would stand in blood and they would make certain promises to each other. They may perhaps even walk like in a figure eight pattern through these dead carcasses. Some people say they walk back to back through these dead carcasses in blood. And what they're doing is they're saying, I swear in blood that I will not fail you. I swear in blood. I promise on the basis of blood. In other words, if I do not uh, fulfill this promise to you, may God do to me what has been done to these animals. See, so they're, 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 they're making it strong, as strong as possible. 
And see, this is what's referred to in other scriptures. For example, you don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah 34 verse 18 says, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. See, he's referencing the same idea that they cut these animals in half, they walked through them as they made these promises. So Abraham did that, okay? He cut the animals. And then something strange happened, something quite unexpected. In Genesis 15, 12, it says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Just like some of you right now, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And, and what happened to Abram was very similar, perhaps almost identical, to what happened to Adam. See? There's nobody here that's suitable to be your helper. So suddenly, God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And Adam woke up, he's married. Oh my God. <laughs> Is that what happened to you too? And uh, <laughs> he actually performed the world's first operation, surgery. He cloned another human being. Isn't that amazing? Praise the Lord. So this is similar to what happened to Abram. And in verse 17 and 18, it says this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land and so forth. Here's the thing. Abram, Abraham did not walk through those pieces. He's asleep. He's like in this, in this like, you know, trance-like state. He did not participate. He did not participate. He's on the sidelines. But he looked and he saw a, a smoking fire pot or like an oven, smoking oven, and then a flaming torch. And those two passed between the pieces. Someone else represented Abram on that day. He did not participate. What's going on? Well, to cut to the chase and make things easier, listen to this scripture in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, the scripture, the Bible does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many or many people, but referring to one, and to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, reveals that the promises that God made to Abraham were to him, and then to the one who would be born among his descendants, the Redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Then the law was added at Sinai because of sin until the one to whom the promises were made should enter into this world. And that night when a deep 
darkness fell upon Abraham, the smoking firepot and the flaming torch. To me, it's clear, it represented the Father and the Son. They entered into covenant. That's what's going on. So God actually did not make a covenant with you because you and I could never fulfill the requirements of God. We would fail. Remember, a covenant is like a marriage. It takes two to have a good marriage. It only takes one to have a bad marriage. It takes two to have a good marriage. So how can we be in covenant with God as undependable, unreliable as we are and as we have been? So he made the covenant with Jesus Christ. And then he put you in Christ to be a partaker, to be included in the covenant. He didn't say, okay, I'm going to come with you, I'm going to come with you, I'm going to come with you. No, 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 no. He made a covenant with the Son. And then he grafted you into the Son so you could be included in that covenant. We were estranged from God. We were enemies. Like Abimelech and Isaac. We were full of animosity and malice toward God, but through the cross he reconciled us, and now he is our peace. And because of his great love for us, like Jonathan and David, he has clothed us with his royal robe of righteousness. And he has given to us the armor of God. And the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful. Praise the Lord. So we are protected. We are cared for. Glory to God. Circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. But we have a circumcision, the Bible says, made without hands, inwardly, in the heart, by the Spirit. So you see, when God first made a covenant with Noah, and that's the first time the word covenant is mentioned in the Bible, he put a rainbow in the sky. It's a sign. I'll never destroy the earth again by a flood. Then he made a covenant with Abraham and there was a mark in his body, in his flesh. But now we're going closer. Now this covenant sign is in your heart, in your spirit. From the sky to my body into me. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And just like Abraham and Abimelech, God gave us a lamb as a witness for the covenant, and you see, God planted a tree. Praise the Lord. And this new covenant was ratified in blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. And we, like Mephibosheth, sorry, Mephibosheth, like Mephibosheth, it's something like that, whatever. (laughs) We, like Mephibosheth, We're living in Lodibar. The word Lodibar in Hebrew means a pastureless place. No grass, not not green, a barren wasteland, an unfruitful place. We were living in Lodibar. We were crippled by sin and we deserve to die. But Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Just like David searched 
for this one. And he found us. And when he did, he immediately restored to us all that the devil had stolen from us. And he gave us a seat at the king's table where we now feast in his presence, not as a servant, not as a slave, but as a son. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So we have the chesed of God. We have extreme and unusual kindness of God, except the New Testament uses this word, grace. Grace. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. And so now, now we can approach God on the basis of the covenant. And it doesn't depend on our own abilities to satisfy God's requirements, for we have all failed. But Hebrews 7.22 says this, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The covenant was made with God the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ, that day. How did Jesus know that the Father would raise him from the dead? Because he had a covenant. He knew the Father would take care of him. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 13, I don't know, around verse 20, you could look it up. It says that he was raised from the dead by the blood of the covenant. He knew it. Hallelujah. So as long as Christ lives, that covenant is in force. It can only fail if he fails and he cannot fail. You and I can fail, but he cannot fail. Hallelujah. Glory to God. And through the covenant, you and I are now the friend of God. Jesus said in John 15 and verse 15, this is my last verse, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Woo. Woo. That means we can fellowship with the Lord. Just like Abraham, we can walk with him. We can talk with him. Praise the Lord. Amen. And he would say to us the same thing. I don't want to hide from you what I'm about to do. I reveal my secrets to those who seek me earnestly. Hallelujah. Make things known to you. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he will show you things to come. Glory to God. You know, you shouldn't go through life always being caught unawares. Wow. Oh, ooh, didn't see that coming. No, no, you should see it coming because you have, you have the great counselor inside of you and he will reveal to you, you need to get ready. This is coming your way. This is coming your way. You need to pray. You need to make some changes because this is coming your way. Hallelujah. I remember Brother Hagin said back in, I think it was maybe 1956. Uh, I'm not sure exactly, 1956. He said that he, he, just as the sun was coming up, suddenly he woke woke from a deep sleep, a sound sleep, woke, woke uh, wide awake, you know? And he said, at that moment, I heard a voice. He, he sprang, kind of sprang up out of bed and he said, I heard a voice. I think to him, it was like an audible voice saying, he said, a recession is coming. Not a depression, but a recession. Get ready for it. And then told him certain things he needed to do, make changes in his ministry, you know, in his, his affairs, so that he would be able to, to uh, you know, ride through the storm. Well, God knows the economy. 
I mean, he knows everything, right? So he can tell you what's coming your way. You need to do this. You need to sell this. You need to, you need to change this around. You need to be, you save money. See, just like God showed Pharaoh, seven years of plenty, seven years of leanness. So, you know, get ready. God can prepare you. He can show you, well, I hide from my covenant partner what, what's going to happen. No, no, he'll let you know. But notice that's after they ate together. That's after they fellowship together. Abraham didn't run up in the middle street and say, what's going to happen in Sodom? Tell me now. No, no, no. Let's sit down. Let's talk. Let's fellowship. Let's commune with one another. Let's just enjoy one another's company. Hallelujah. And then as, as at the right moment, you know, as necessary, here's something you need to know. That's why, you know, worshiping the Lord is not a preliminary. It's not just something we do to pass the time. It's not just something to do to kind of get a little heated up. But, you know, we need to fellowship with the Father. We need to enjoy being in his presence because much is lost. Much is lost because we're so in a hurry. We're so busy. And, and I, I'll tell you, I'm guilty of this as much as anybody. We're such in a hurry to rush off to the next thing. But there are things the Lord would like to show you. He'd like to reveal to you so that you could be prepared, so that you'd be in positioned Amen for what's coming your way. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And then, like Abraham, we can intercede. We can come to him boldly. We are kings and priests. Amen. So we can come boldly to the Lord and we can pray for the lost. We can pray for our loved ones. We can pray for our nation. You know, it's often said, and you know what, you'd have to admit it's true. If the nation is faltering, is it not because the church has lost its light and its salt no longer has any savor? Because we have the ability. We have the ability to pray. We have the ability to stand in the gap. Isn't that true? We have the ability to come before the Lord. We don't expect, you know, these sinners, they don't know God. How can they possibly, you know, uh, hear from God and have the wisdom of God? But we can, we can take our place. We have, the church has more authority than she realizes. She has more influence than she realizes. The church has more power than she understands. That's why we need to know covenant. We need to take, take our place in the covenant. And there's a lot of lots who'll be glad that we did. You understand? Let's all stand up to our feet. Praise the Lord.